1: Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. Oh, I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and broadest dad of them all. As always, and especially in June, dad is an energy, not a gender.
0: Happy Pride, babe. Happy Pride. It's, uh, didn't mention it when we dropped the last episode, which was June 1st.
1: Yeah, oh. but we didn't record it in June, so our brains forgot.
0: It's true. So as of this dropping, we're a solid week into Pride Month. So... Yeah, we uh, we love everybody, <laughs> except theater talkers. Step off.
1: Yeah, put your phone away, stop talking, and we'll probably love you.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay. I, I mean, I think this is a pretty cool week. We covered some real cool movies that I that I really liked. So let's get into it. We watched Five Smacker Smackaroonies, and uh, you kicked it off with a lovely little mystery movie pick.
1: Lovely is an interesting word choice. <laughs> I picked the 1988 thriller mystery The Vanishing. It was directed by George Sluzer and written by him and Tim Crabbe, or Crabbe, maybe, French. Um, and it was based on Tim Crabbe's novel, The Golden Egg. It stars Jean Bervois as Rex Hoffman, Johanna Ter Steg as Saskia Wachter, and Bernard-Pierre Donadieu as Raymond Lemorn. Um, it is a primarily Dutch and French film, and it is, oof, the synopsis. Rex and Saskia are enjoying a biking holiday in France when, stopping at a gas station, Saskia disappears. This is one that um, I believe our friend Jeremy mentioned when we were out visiting him last summer. Could have been a different movie. Um, And then I've seen it kind of on lists and, and heard good things about it, and I just felt like something a little unsettling. And so I picked it. What did you think of The Vanishing?
0: Yeah, I had no clue what this was about. And until you said that about our friend Jeremy, because when we were talking with him, he was kind of searching for...
1: Yeah, he couldn't remember what what it was was called. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, uh, no clue what it was about, but I was on edge immediately. Very quickly into the movie, it starts establishing what the relationship is like between Saskia and what's... Rex. Rex and what their dynamic is. And... I mean as a couple and then there's some things that happen between them that immediately you and I are like if you did that to me it's over divorce <laughs> yeah um so it establishes this really interesting relationship dynamic between the two of them and then when that incident happens with Saskia disappearing it's so it's so relatable in on such on such a human level of just that panic that happens that you see happens in parents when they can't find their kid in a public space or something like that. Like when you I mean
1: I know this sounds silly, but I think anyone who has been in this situation can relate. If like we wake up in the morning and the cat hasn't come to say hi to us, I like panic that he's injured or he somehow got out because it's atypical of him not to like be around us and then I go searching the house for him, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think any of that just like something is out of the ordinary and I don't know what happened, and now I'm trying to figure it out mm-hmm. is actually pretty relatable.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I I totally agree. I mean, on a nicer note, Rex and Saskia, a couple of very baby babes.
1: Oh yeah. I'm like 1988 Babe Factory.
0: <laughs> um <laughs> not
1: Raymond though
0: no man his Uh,
1: facial hair was a real problem for you yeah
0: this facial his facial hair is a real big L in this movie on top of other things but I feel like you know at the end of this movie it's essentially just some of my worst fears all in a row from the beginning to the very end
1: it was interesting about this movie I I found it really effective like I I um I liked it from just like a horror mystery perspective. I found it unsettling. I thought it was asking some bigger questions about like human nature. Mm. And then I also thought it was like well-made as a film. Like it's not a straightforward thriller. It's doing some interesting stuff with structure and some interesting stuff with symbolism. Um, But this director really hasn't made anything else successful. And I was like, oh, that's so, it's so interesting to have done something that I think is, is really impressive. And I definitely want to revisit and probably want to show some people.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And it's not like when we watched our first Bergman and it's like, Oh, Oh. we have so much to, to now watch from him or, you know, just a couple weeks back when we watched our first Kirstami and we're like, okay, Mm -hmm. now we're, we're all in on him. I I went and looked at his oeuvre and I'm like, there's nothing here. I really want to watch. (laughs) It's a shame. One hit wonder.
0: Yeah. Cause he absolutely nailed that suspense and and thriller genre. I mean like it's also I found it interesting coming off of American Psycho last week. This is such an intriguing look at a calculated sociopath whereas Patrick Bateman is very uncalculated.
1: Yeah, he's unhinged.
0: Yeah. And just the deep dive into the psyche uh and the methods of Oh god, what's his name? Uh Raymond. Mm-hmm. Like the the amount of time we spend with him and as you kind of start because it's not really spelled out for the audience of what it is exactly that he's doing, but as it as you spend more time with him you're like, "Oh, he's doing this to do this to do this." Like it's all very methodical and thought out and calculated and it's terrifying.
1: Well, that's such a Impressive part of this film. You know, you and I, we've talked about this on the show before. We we really like horror. We watch a lot of horror. And it's pretty tough at this point with how many horror movies we've watched to scare us. Mm -hmm. This movie isn't graphic at all. No. It's not graphic sexually. It's not graphic violence wise. And yet it is so horrifying. Yeah. And and not in a Texas chainsaw way, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, of like well, they're implying the violence. Like, no, there's not even any of that. Mm-hmm. The horror is in the not knowing. Yeah. And then the realizing like it, that's that's where the horror comes. And um, in a lot of ways, and I can't speak about this too specifically without spoiling things. It actually reminds me a lot of funny games. Yeah. But kind of on um a little bit of a subtler level, like funny games when it reaches the point When it wants you to know, when Haneke wants you to know that this is a meta film, there's no denying it. Whereas The Vanishing, I think you could watch it and not consider like the meta narrative going on, which is what it's asking you, the viewer, about why you engage with these types of movies and what you want from them. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a quote I have from David Kerr of the Chicago Tribune who did not like this movie. Mm. Um, And he said, it's a film that functions on curiosity rather than real interest. Yet in the end, punishes the audience for wanting to have its questions answered. And I think if that's true, that's the point. Yeah. And it's, and it's making a point through that. And I actually think that's brilliant.
0: (laughs) Yeah. See, I think that that hot take from David is (laughs) a very Elliot in high school surface level take of the film. Like, I can see the younger version of myself, less critical version of myself being frustrated because on a surface level, yeah, I didn't have all my questions answered and it wasn't super clear. And I still have some of those tendencies as we've talked about on this show because that's how I consumed media for so many years. But I can totally see, see a younger version of myself not liking it for that reason. But I'm totally with you. Watching it now, I'm like, oh, this fucking rips because it is clever and smart and purposeful. I felt the purpose by the end and not having all my questions asked. And that's what makes it a film that I feel stands the test of time.
1: And the other the other interesting connection to Funny Games here, which is is one of my all time favorite movies, is that if you know anything about Michael Haneke's Funny Games, he made a shot for shot remake of it um, as an American version, because that was always his intention was to to film it in America. But I think he just didn't get the like green light to do that the first time around. So he made his original film. Um, this also has an American remake, also directed by the same director. But it is definitely not shot for shot. Don't, and it is not the same movie. We just like read. Well, we watched the trailer.
0: Don't watch the trailer for it because it, well, it ruins the
1: whole movie. Yeah. And it would ruin the OG movie, too. But then I read the plot summary for it and I'm like, this is dog shit. Like it takes all of the best parts of this movie and then makes them American, which means makes it over the top, adds in unnecessary subplots, um, takes out all of the like intentionality and slowness of it in order to turn it into spectacle.
0: But I bet you David from the Tribune.
1: David Care probably loved it. Yeah,
0: got all of his questions answered.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, I was really impressed by this. Uh, it's been called Hitchcockian. And, you know, honestly, haven't seen enough Hitchcock movies to really speak to that. But uh, Stanley Kubrick said this was one of the most terrifying films he had ever seen.
0: Yeah, it is. It's terrifying. And like I go back to what I said earlier, it just feels terrifying on such a human level. Like it doesn't feel hyper exaggerated in any way the way that a Texas Chainsaw might feel.
1: Yeah, You're like, what are the chances I'm going to get in that situation?
0: Yeah, like this feels so it could happen to me. And, and even if so it didn't fun. happen
1: in that particular way, this film is looking at, I mean, think of the title, The Vanishing. It's looking at how the human psyche deals with not knowing. Yes. Which doesn't even have to be about a human being going missing on vacation. It can be about just not knowing anything. And I think even in these particular times that we're in right now, humans don't, aren't dealing well with not knowing. Mm-hmm. Like think back to 2020 and this like not knowing when things were going to quote unquote end, um, people didn't handle it well. I also though, I do want to point out that the, the direct translation of the film from it's like original Dutch name is not the vanishing. It's traceless. Oh, I kind of like that.
0: Uh, yeah. Ooh. Yeah. I do like that. Traceless.
1: The I, Vanishing's nice though. It's a good, it's a good title. Yeah.
0: Um, and it's a criterion collection movie. And as you look at the, cover on Criterion Collection because it's kind of sick. It's a bit of like an optical illusion, which I really like. Um, I just want to go back to what you said there about the human desire of knowing and how it's against not knowing. Or like, I, f- I feel, a thought that popped into my head when you said that is just kind of gen- more generally now that we have the internet and we have smartphones in our pockets at all times kind of gone is the time of just somebody like some, if you don't know something, you ask the group of people around you. And if somebody answers you, you just kind of take that answer. And that's, that's what (laughs) it is, is I guess. Cause I'm not whipping out the encyclopedia to see if you're right or not. Now there is just this immediate, if you don't know something, I'm going to go to the internet so that I can educate myself on that.
1: Or even on another level, like I had a friend who I haven't really, been connected with in a long time but who used to just like share location if she was coming to me so i would know when she's going to arrive and i'm like do i need that
2: <laughs> yeah do
1: i need to watch your car as if it's like an uber eats getting to me <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah 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 it's i'm sure people can still vanish though
0: yeah yeah 100%
1: and i'd prefer it if you were not one of them
0: well every time i go on a trip i swallow an apple airtag so you you got me i got gotcha. you Nice.
1: How did The Vanishing make you feel?
0: Profoundly upset, but effectively engaged. How did it make you feel? It
1: made me feel a deep sense of discomfort crawling under my skin. Like the whole movie, I was just like,
0: kick. We watched a pretty important one for both of us. Uh, and, we, and we got to see it in the theater, which was freaking sick. We revisited the 1995 comedy drama romance now and then. It was directed by Leslie Linka Glatter, which I was doing a little deep dive. She's directed a lot of cool stuff. She's directed episodes uh, of Love and Death, that new Elizabeth Olsen show on HBO, Homeland, Leftovers, Mad Men, Freaks and Geeks, and Twin Peaks, the OG Twin Peaks. She's done some cool shit. It was written by I, Marlene King, and... There's a young version and old version of each of our main characters. So as young Roberta, Christina Ricci, adult Roberta. Or you know what? I'll do then Roberta, Christina Ricci. Now Roberta, Rosie O'Donnell. Then Teeny Thor Birch. And now Teeny Mel- Melanie Griffith. Then Samantha, Gabby Hoffman. Now Samantha, Demi Moore. Then Chrissy, Ashley Ashton Moore. And now Chrissy, Rita Wilson, uh, and Scott Wormer, it was uh, Devin Sawa, <laughs> and Walter Sparrow played Crazy Pete. Synopsis, Waxing nostalgic about the bittersweet passage from childhood to puberty in this tender coming-of-age tale, four childhood friends, Teenie, Chrissy, Samantha, and Roberta, recall the magical summer of 1970. During their walk down memory lane, they reconciled experiences with boys, secrets, bullies, and more. Like I said, this first time in the theater, saw it at our favorite place, Metro Cinema, and this, yeah, this was our first time seeing it in the theater. I've said this three times now. <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you think of it? And I want you, I want you to start getting to your story because I feel like we both have a bit of a history, <laughs> a bit of a history with this movie.
1: Yeah, I love this movie. Um, it's really important to me. So this is a movie came out when we were five years old and I couldn't tell you the first time I watched it, but I have seen it so many times. I'm imagining I can't, since I can't place the first time I saw it, that it was with my mom and my sisters. That seems logical Hmm. Um, and that we watched it together a lot, especially just me and my sisters. I also showed it to friends and then we would watch it all the time and I watched a lot by myself. I loved the soundtrack and I would listen to that on repeat like I have Very distinct memories of listening to it in my bedroom and singing along to it and pretending to like knock on the pipes and the ceiling and stuff like that. If you
0: have no interest in seeing this movie, at the very least, look up the the soundtrack, soundtrack.
1: it's so good. Like, this movie is such an intrinsic part of me and my sister's like upbringing that we, when we decorated the house for Halloween every year, we put a Dear Johnny like tombstone on our front lawn. Yeah, probably not. That's but so good. Yeah, we always we always made a Dear Johnny tombstone. It didn't quite look like the one in the film because none of us are particularly artistic. <laughs> but we would put a cardboard tombstone in the front lawn and write Dear Johnny on it.
0: It's incredible. <laughs>
1: um I just I can't fathom not liking this movie. It's one of those ones that it's so important to me that I can't see any criticisms of it or any reason to dislike it. Um and for me it's one of the most accurate representations of what my girlhood felt like. Mm -hmm. Um, also probably because I grew up from like grade one to grade six in a four girl friendship where not all of us were best friends, which I feel like is very obvious in this movie that there's kind of groups of two. Mm -hmm. Um, so there was four of us and like one person I actively disliked and two people I was friends with. And I think everybody had one of those in the group. Mm -hmm. Um, and we all kind of, were a little bit different from each other, but we just hung out all the time. We tried to solve a murder mystery once, um, at our, <laughs> at our school, <laughs> there was train tracks behind a, a wire fence. And we saw a bag of what I now know is pink Panther insulation, mm-hmm. but we thought it was a dead body. We thought there was a body stuffed into that bag. <laughs> and we started like a detective group where the four of us would like try and solve it. And we're like, looking things up and I would like write our write our this progress we had made and hide it in a picture frame in my room um, in case anybody found it. And we like went behind the train tracks and got really scared. Um, So like I've, I've done these things. And then this question comes to me of did I do these things because I love this movie? Or would I have done these things anyway? (laughs) Or do I love this movie because it echoed parts of me that already were there? Or is it a little bit of both? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, I also frequently tried to get my friends to sneak out and do seances with me. And I had tarot cards and all that stuff. And I don't know. I I just really love this movie.
0: Yeah, I think both of us put in our letterbox reviews that objectively we know this is not a five out of five movie. But for both of us, this is a five out of five movie. My, my history with it isn't as deep as yours, but it's kind of, it's kind of funny. So, um, the first time that I saw this, uh, I mean, I was probably like maybe around seven or eight because my babysitter at the time, this is like very classic movie tropey kind of babysitter stuff, but (laughs) she came over to look after my sister and me and my sister got put to bed. And then my babysitter invited a friend over, and her friend picked up a bunch of rented movies from Blockbuster. Mm-hmm. And this was one of the movies that they rented. And so I remember sitting with my babysitter and her friend watching this. And they hadn't seen it for they hadn't seen it yet. And like I remember just so many of the jokes going over my head, like the whole like needs a big hose to water the garden. <laughs> like they love that. They were like cackling it. I'm like, Yeah, like you like a big hose to water a garden. <laughs>
1: See, that's embedded in my brain in an understanding of what sex is (laughs) because of that movie.
0: But I I just remember, I remember watching that, that time watching it and then I, we eventually owned it and I just like watched it multiple times and Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Like I just thought it was. I thought it was really fun and the music is really great. And I love the, the whole like mystery dear Johnny stuff. I love all the relationships between them. Like this is a movie. I think that there's a lot of unfair comparisons between this movie and stand by me. And a lot of people just saying that this is just girl stand by me
1: or it's not as good as stand by me.
0: Yeah. And I do not equate the two really at all.
1: Yeah. I, I agree with that. Um, So even though often we agree with Roger Ebert, he, in his original review of this movie, he said that it was, quote, made of artificial bits and pieces and then compared it to Stand By Me and said, whereas what distinguished Stand By Me was the psychological soundness of the story, we could believe it and care about it, implying that you can't believe and care about this. And honestly, I think that's an unfair comparison because I think they're two completely different stories. And frankly, I think it's sexist. Yeah. I think in saying that, in saying that I wanted this to be girl stand by me or it is girl stand by me or whatever it is implying that boys are more important and boys stories are better Mm -hmm. because to me as a little girl that watched this movie this felt very true to my girlhood experience and then to say not as sound or believable or interesting as stand by me is to say girls aren't as sound as interesting as believable as boys yeah. Like, Honestly, I find this more believable than stand yeah, by like,
0: me. Like I, I've revisited this movie way more than I've watched stand by me. And
1: I will say I love stand by me. too. Yeah. Yeah. Stand by A me lot. is great.
0: Um, but yeah, like I, I just get, I get so much more out of this one. Like this feels more true to like the, this feels true to the growing up in the suburbs, even though like I was growing up two or three decades later. Um, and I don't, after the, when this is set and like, and like you too, like I, I had a group of four. It, it, albeit in high school, but like two of us, like it was a group of four that all hung out. But there was two that were closer and two that were closer in that group. Like it's just, I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't get the comparison and the hate for. Well, I think this the movie. comparison
1: is just like four kids riding around, and and the the like mystery of, of of, of death in both of it. Yeah. Um. With you, I, I am aligned in that idea of now and then speak specifically to, like, a suburban experience that I don't think Stand By Me does. Um, Stand By Me, I never really get a sense of, like, the family dynamics in the same way. Um, it very much just seems to be more about, like, the four kids in this, like, adventure that they're on and their, ex- like, the kind of relational dynamics between them and older kids, whereas now and then seems to be very much about like the familial structure and how girls navigate it. Mm-hmm. Um, now what's interesting is, and great is that there's kind of been a resurgence of appreciating now and then. And um, a film critic named Alana Kaplan has said that this film was ahead of its time. Um, and then she said, quote, it gives the complexity of, complexities of girlhood await that coming of age films had previously typically neglected. The film showed tween girls as fully realized characters who weren't written off or secondary tackling death and grief along with budding sexuality gave their stories weight when narratives about female adolescence were often surface level. That feels true to me. Yeah. <laughs> like this felt like something that there's like a relatable experience to most people who watch it, whether you're, Somebody like Teeny, who's, you know, fairly stable in like your financial structure, but you feel disconnected from your parents. Um, I really related to Sam this like, you know, parents, even though my parents weren't divorced when I was watching it, but as I discovered later, they kind of were, they were just staying together for the kids. Like I obviously could feel that Um, big crush on Roberta. I'm sure you had one too.
0: Oh, yeah, the Christina Ricci crush is alive and well in this movie.
1: (laughs) But even like I've I've read and listened to some really thoughtful commentary on like Roberta as being relatable to some like trans or non-binary or just gender non-conforming folks because of the fact that she tapes down her boobs, Mm -hmm. right? And obviously that's not where the character goes in the end. But the fact that there's like a character who you could relate to in that way is pretty profound. Like, I feel like that character reads very queer.
0: Yeah. And like they, they totally just should have made Rosie O'Donnell gay. Well, she
1: has said like Rosie O'Donnell has said that originally the character was supposed to be gay, but then there was like concerns about how that would register. But I think you can still read her as gay because there's like this moment where, adult Chrissy says she lives in sin with her boyfriend, but like we could just pretend that that's not true Yeah, (laughs) or maybe her boyfriend's trans. Well, you know,
0: well, and it's so, yeah. And it's so funny because I feel like the thing that makes her quote unquote not gay is just that one throwaway line. Like if that line's not there, you can totally infer that she's gay. Even, yeah, yeah. even if the line is, even though the line is there, you can still offer She can offer be bisexual it. too. Yeah, totally. She's just fucking doing her own thing.
1: Yeah, I, I, I love, I love all of that. And I know some people have talked about like the now section feeling irrelevant. Personally, I really like it. And I know it's not done as gracefully as like, say, Brother, which we covered last week, where you're kind of flitting between the now and the end in this really fluid and beautiful way. But I still like that. I like that. In exploring the now, the film is also digging into how things that happen to us stay with us. And for the good and the bad, we need to do the work of thinking about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and is the film a little saccharine at times? Yes. But I also think as a young girl who was watching this, it gave validity to like my feelings of grief and anger and frustration and and like crushes and friendship and family issues like all of it felt validated within the film Um, and I think that's really important
0: I just I just had a thought that you know I know that there's been a lot of controversy around like Rosie O'Donnell and like things that she said in the past and stuff but something that can be said about her is that she loves being in movies that are all about exploring the complexities of girl and womanhood like thinking uh, a league of their own. Mm. Uh, this, even fucking Harriet the Spy.
1: I love Harriet the Spy.
0: Yeah, I I, I want to revisit it, but like as a kid, I love that movie. And Harriet is dealing with the complexities of growing up and the social circles you're in, and being in school, and trying to like find your own voice and stuff. And I just I dig that she is a part of all of these projects that are about like lifting up girls or lifting up women.
1: So then this is a good time to talk about uh, watching it in the theater. Mm. I was nervous and excited because in our experience of going to Metro Cinema when they play these kind of older classic films, it's either amazing or not amazing. (laughs) (laughs) There tends to be no in between, really. And I think there was quite a few people who came to see this movie who hadn't seen it before. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of laughing at the movie. Yeah. Which I found, honestly, painful. Because this is a movie that means a lot to me. I think we watched it a little over a year ago and I cried when we watched it. There's two scenes in particular that get me really emotional. And in one of them, people were laughing at the scene. And I'm like, you know, I don't I don't think this movie is poorly acted. And I don't think this movie is poorly made. And the laughter felt akin to when we went and saw Mac and me in the theater. And like everybody was laughing, but that was fun. Or the way you laugh when you see the room.
0: Yeah, like a movie that is kind of at this point meant for you to take the piss out of a little bit.
1: And but- that's not what I think this movie is or how no. I imagine, you know, they played Twilight um in in this in, at Metro uh, last week, I believe, and I'm sure it had that kind of a vibe and everybody's in on that and that's fun, and I didn't expect that to be what this felt like. Yeah. And it was a little difficult because it felt like what we had talked about with this kind of unfair comparison to stand by me and in laughing at the movie, it seems to be denigrating girlhood and like mm. making fun of girls. And I just think that there's some reflection that maybe needs to happen for folks who, who did that. I don't think anyone needs to like the movie. And I totally get that this, this movie could be like a solid three out of five for somebody. And, and I would accept that mm-hmm. um, logically, mm-hmm. but I don't think there's stuff in this movie that deserves being laughed at at definitely funny moments to laugh with it
0: like and that those moments were cool in the theater because like it was it was quite busy so there was a lot of like uproarious laughter at the bits that are supposed to be funny but yeah I'm totally with you because there are just emotional beats in here that there's moments there's a moment in uh during a baseball game that still gives me chills because it's just it just hits me right in the heart I think it's incredible and then yeah I think there's a couple other ones that always get me welled up always get me emotional and i think fi- i feel i was fully ready to let the tears flow but yeah it's just that cr- that those crowd responses that just felt so it it, it just I, I felt like <laughs> kind of gutted personally
1: yeah in a way that you know we went and saw I can't. I like when we saw they live there. The audience was a little pee pee poo poo, but it didn't hurt me that it was pee pee poo poo. This one kind of did. Where mm-hmm. I was like, this movie is something that made me feel valid as a girl. Mm. It made me feel like my experience mattered and was important. And to f- see other women and femmes laughing at it, and not in a way that we're like all in on on it together and like laughing at it together, was like pretty rough. Yeah. To go in a sweeter direction though, um, when I was reading the trivia for this, there was just a trivia on IMDb that said Christina Ricci and Gabby Hoffman are best friends in real life. And I was like, hmm, is that true? <laughs> it feels like a pretty uh, intense statement. And so I, I found this article, this Vanity Fair article that was interviewing Christina Ricci and Gabby Hoffman just last year. And I guess they did become like really incredibly good friends after this film was made. And, we're really good friends for a handful of years and they're still, I think they still are close and are friends. Um, And I just wanted to read a couple parts from it because I think it's quite sweet. So the article started with, um, the movie's diehard fans will be thrilled to learn that Hoffman and Ricci quickly bonded off screen as well, forming a tight dyad as they took in multiple screenings of Pulp Fiction and did stupid things quote at the local mall. We were obsessed with each other. Ricci says, Vanity Fair asks, what did you remember about the first time you met? Christina Ricci says, we knew each other for a very long time before we were friends because Gabby and I would always run into each other at auditions when we were children. I think the first time I met you, and now she's speaking to Gabby Hoffman, you were seven years old or something. Gabby was the most adorable little girl, long legs like a colt, and then crazy huge hair. I wanted to be friends with her for a long time, and then we ended up on a movie together. Do you remember when we all met at at Demi Moore's trailer? Gabby Hoffman says, no, I don't. I have such a bad memory. She says, Demi was going to decide when she met us who was going to play the younger version of her, and then we hung out. We were weird preteens, and We walked across the lot and then snuck off together, and all Thora Birch wanted to know was how many boys we'd kissed. Yeah. <laughs> and then the interviewer asks, Gabby, what was your first impression of Christina? Gabby Hoffman says, to me, the story of making that movie was falling in love with Christina. I was obsessed with her. We really had fun. We went to the mall every weekend to see Pulp Fiction and played these weird games.
0: <laughs> oh, that's so cute.
1: <laughs> yeah, very, very sweet.
0: Well, was funny because you... Uh Last night, actually, we watched this interview uh, with an interviewer interviewing the both of them and they're both sitting on this kind of love seat and they're just kind of cuddled up next to each other and like they're not wearing shoes and they're just like very <laughs> casual with each other. It's just it's just very cute to see how bonded they were. I love that. I, I, I mean, I love both of them. I love when I love when Gabby Hoffman pops up and stuff. Frankly, I think that she deserves to be in much more stuff. And I've been enjoying the hell out of Christina Ricci in yellow jackets lately.
1: Yeah. That interview has some really interesting stuff about um, both of them talking about the choices that they're making currently in their acting. Um, And Christina Ricci says that like, she specifically did yellow jackets for Misty. Like that was the only character she wanted to play. Oh, she's perfect. Uh, She's so good in it.
0: Um, Couple things I just want to I want to say about this movie. First of all, there is a excellent instance of like top tier consent in this movie. Yeah, uh, it's so good and such a great example for young boys to to see in as uh, a great example of consent. There's excellent cameos in this. Like what the fuck? Like like Bonnie Hunt, Brendan Fraser. Jean- Jean- Jeanine Groffalo.
1: Yeah, she's so good in it. There's a line she says that we quote fairly often. Yeah,
0: uh, Cloris Leachman is great, and uh, Hank Azaria. Like, what the hell? But uh, I think yeah, a highlight for me, Janine, uh, and Bonnie, and then Brendan Fraser. I think is great. As soon as Ben Brendan Fraser came on screen, a lot of pe- I felt a lot of people in the audience being like, "Is that
2: Brendan Fraser?" <laughs>
0: Yeah, my uh, there's only one true critique that I have for this movie now in retrospect that doesn't hold up as well is that there's a lot of jokes and mm-hmm. fat shaming directed at the character of Chrissy when uh, in the then uh part of the movie that that it's not great. Doesn't it doesn't need to happen and and it's like those moments that you know maybe maybe that's like true to friend group dynamics of the time, but I don't know.
1: But it doesn't seem to be saying anything about it. And, you Just, know, yeah. I think of in school of rock, there's that really <laughs> beautiful scene where the one kid is a fr- like doesn't want to go and sing on the stage and says it's because she's fat and people are going to laugh at her. And instead of like saying, no, you're not fat or, oh, well you like, you can get skinny or whatever narrative it might be. Um, Jack Black's character says you know who has a little weight problem too me and she goes well why don't you go on a diet and he says because i like to eat and i'm sexy <laughs> you know and so it's just this like celebration of different bodies and i feel like the film could have done that
2: mm-hmm.
1: or it could have gotten to that place and it's a little bit disappointing and also really sad because the actress who played chrissy died at age 27
0: holy shit really yeah
1: she's from bc and she died of um drug overdose at age twenty seven fuck and i i just i can only imagine how i don't I don't profess to know anything about this particular death or this particular like life post film mm-hmm. um and there isn't a lot about her on the internet.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: She didn't make a lot of other work um but I can't imagine how hard it is to be a a child actor, especially as a girl, but then to also have played the character that's the butt of the joke, yeah. I think has got to be an incredibly difficult thing as a child. um, When we watched uh, Welcome to the Dollhouse, I said that I just can't imagine how you psychologically take care of a child, especially a girl who is in a film where everyone's calling her ugly. Mm -hmm. You know, like if they made like a live action family guy and there was an actual girl playing Meg, how do you take care of that person's mental health when they're playing a character like that? So I, I can't mi- profess to say that that had anything to do with her death or her life, but it is very sad.
0: Yeah, I've, I've been even more hyper aware of just child actors in things and how they're treated after reading I, um, I'm Glad My Mom Died by Jeanette McCurdy. Great book. Highly recommend it. But uh, like she recounts growing up as a child actor kind of against her will. But yeah, just how there, especially for such a long time, there was not this fostering of healthy working conditions and mental health support for young child actors growing up in the business. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm with you. Like how how do you support somebody who, a- after the cameras stop rolling, yeah. who you've just spent a scene ripping on their body image? Yeah, yeah, that's. Uh, that's tough. That's not great. and I, But like I said, for me, that's kind of like the one major critique I have for this movie. Everything else is just magic. Agreed. Yeah. So rewatching it now, how does it make you feel?
1: So I find this movie to be such a tender, beautiful exploration of girlhood. And so that's how it makes me feel. It just makes me feel an appreciation and respect for how tenderly this film represents the experience of girlhood.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's really nice. You? Uh, I appreciate it even more now than I did
1: then. (laughs) See what you did there? Nice. All right. So this was a bit of uh, out of left field. Um, We ended up going to the theater to see the 1993 film True Romance. It's a romance crime action film directed by Tony Scott and written by a bit of a pee-pee poo-poo. Quentin Tarantino, um, and Roger Avery it stars so many people. Like now and then, it has all of these small but like holy shit cameos in it. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to name all of them. Oh yeah, um, it has Christian Slater in a lead role as Clarence Worley, and Patricia Arquette in the other lead role as Alabama Whitman. Uh, then it has Michael Rappaport as Dick, Dick- <laughs> Michael Rapaport as Dick Ritchie, Gary Oldman as Drex Spivvy, Dennis Hopper as Clifford Worley, Christopher Walken is Vi- and as Vincenzo Cocotti, Brad Pitt as Floyd, James Gandolfini as Virgil, Val Kilmore as Val Kilmer <laughs> as the mentor, Sal Rubinick as Lee Donowitz, and Bronson Pinchot as Elliot Blitzer. Synopsis for True Romance is Clarence Mary's sex worker Alabama steals cocaine from her pimp and tries to sell it in Hollywood, while the owners of the Coke try to reclaim it. So the reason this kind of came out of left field is this is a movie um, we haven't seen in a really long time. I think I've seen it more times than you have. Mm-hmm. And you just happened to stumble upon the fact that it was playing for one showing at the Cineplex. Um, and you texted me while I was at work and said, would you want to go to this tonight? And I was like, I don't know. And then we were like, eh, let's go. Yeah, Let's go do it. So we we went to see it because it was playing in the theater and we've never seen it in the theater and we thought that could be an interesting experience.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What do you think of revisiting True Romance?
0: Yeah it's kind of interesting because I've been wanting to revisit this for a while but it's been kind of backburnery because I'm trying to we've been watching a lot of Quentin content lately. <laughs> trying to like kind of quell that.
1: Yeah not too much Quentin content.
0: Um, but this was yeah like this was playing in the theater like this is a good excuse to go see it. Uh, and to watch it it's the 30th anniversary of it so that's why it was being re-released and i'll just say too like it was kind of a weird theater experience in that like not in the sense that the crowd was bad or anything but because it was the 30th anniversary they had this preamble packet package of interviews of people like some of the <laughs> lesser known people that were in the film and like talking heads from tony scott's wife because tony scott has passed away uh, just kind of talking about the making of the film, and this thing was like half an hour long, and yeah. and, and, and
1: not well edited, <laughs> and, and
0: and spoiler written.
1: Yeah, and, and through the spoiler talk, they were overlaying it with clips from the movie that spoiled the movie.
0: Yeah, so if this was your first time ever seen True True Romance, heads up, <laughs> you're getting it spoiled for you. Yeah. Um, It was just really long-winded. And uh, maybe if you're like a diehard true romance fan, you're just all in. But I
1: also feel like if you're a diehard true romance fan, you've heard all of that before.
0: Yeah, I didn't. There was like one story that I found kind of interesting and, and like kind of. I think like they had this message that was sent in by michael rapaport i think that was my favorite thing
1: yeah i could have just had that and i would have been happy happy happy
0: it was like just like an old guy trying to figure out how to make a video on his iphone and it was great and
1: this was the funny thing and i don't know how i feel about this but i feel like pre-2020 if you were gonna have any sort of interview of any kind it was done in person or it was like people in different locations were going to an actual studio and filming it. And then like it was edited together by somebody somewhere else now, because we've all gotten so used to it from 2020, people are just like filming on like the shittiest quality things with the shittiest audio in their homes, in like the weird locations they've chosen. Yeah. Like um, Bronson Pinchot was doing like a (laughs) (laughs) 0.5 and it was just like, it was such a weird thing that he had, like, a curtain, like, a black, like, it almost looked like a bed sheet just, like, <laughs> draped behind him. Yeah. And so it's just, it seems cheap. It seems poorly done. It seems like they just put out an email call and were like, hey, anybody want to, like, ramble on about true romance? And these were the only people who answered. Yeah. And it just like wasn't fun to watch for 30 minutes. If it had been like little two minute clips from each of those people, it probably could have been a sweet way to start the film. Mm-hmm. But it was just rambling on and on as I feel like we are doing now. So let's talk about the actual movie.
0: Yeah. So I think kind of just I want to touch on the history of this movie is that I had never seen it before and you actually showed it to me for the first time.
1: I don't remember that, but I believe it.
0: Um And you showed it to me at a time where I still thought Quentin Tarantino was really cool. So I was really stoked. I was like, no way. This is a Quentin Tarantino written movie. This is sick. Um, And yeah, I remember you showed it to me and we got to the end. I'm like, oh my God, this is so cool. And you're so cool for showing it to me. (laughs) Do you remember seeing it for the first time or seeking it out?
1: I I don't, but in watching it, I'm guessing before I was sadly and admittedly a like huge Johnny Depp fan. Um, My my go-to person was Brad Pitt. Mm. Um, And there was a point in time when I was quite young, like I'm going to say 10, 11, 12, where I was trying to watch every Brad Pitt movie. This is why I saw like seven probably when I was too young to see seven. Mm-hmm. And I think that's likely when I saw this is because Brad Pitt is in it. I watched it even though he's like barely in it. And I and I really liked it. Um, mm-hmm. It's definitely one I've seen not a ton, but, but quite a few times. Um, and I think I probably showed it to you because I was really surprised you'd never seen it. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing about this is even though Quentin Tarantino wrote it, there's something about Tony Scott having directed it that tamps down the Tarantinoism a bit.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But when the Tarantino comes out, it really does. Yes. And you're just like, oh, yeah, that's that's. Yeah, that's Tarantino. Specifically, his like favorite thing to do, I I think, is having white people use racial slurs. He just loves that.
0: Yeah, he loves putting the N word in the mouths of white people in his movies, and it's it's just it feels now watching it that it's it feels so like oh I know black people so this is cool that I do this
1: like if that's Quentin Tarantino's <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 I mean I don't know I don't know what the deal is with it. There's there's a scene in the film that like relies heavily on that for like the comedy or whatever it's trying to do comedy in quotation marks. Um, and I was actually, as we were watching it, cause I was a little worried. I'm like, I used to really like this film. I haven't seen it in like a decade. What am I going to think of it now? Mm-hmm. And I was really enjoying it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then that scene happened and I was like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> right. This is, this is the stuff that makes it not be one of my favorite movies. And then afterwards I'm reading about how Quentin Tarantino says that scene is one of his proudest moments. <laughs> Fuck off, dude. <laughs> I'm just like, God damn wow. It. Really? That's the one scene that I'm like we could lift that out and this would be a much stronger film. Um there's other folks who really take issue with the um the level of violence on Patricia Arquette's body in the film. Yeah. That there seems to be like a reveling in men committing acts of physical violence in a gratuitous way on women's bodies Mm -hmm. um, doesn't bother me as much. But I totally see the validity in in that Mm -hmm. and why that would be something that is hard to get past for Mm -hmm. people who like other aspects of the film.
0: Yeah. Just like, if you've ever watched Quentin Tarantino give an interview or talk about his movies or anything, he's just like that type of guy that thinks he is, he has this air about him that's too cool for school. And he, he knows that he's cool and he knows that people love his movies and stuff and that he is just, he's this Wikipedia of knowledge about everything and that he does nothing wrong. Like it's just, it's just this cock of the walk attitude that I don't, I don't, I don't love.
1: (laughs) Something that, I mean, so I agree with you. I'm not a fan of him as a person. Um, there's a period a while back where I was listening to Eli Roth's History of Horror podcast. So it's the full interviews that they then edited into the episodes of Eli Roth's History of Horror, and there's two that Quentin Tarantino's on and they are like double the length of any other episode. And I just my eyes were rolled pretty much the entire time. Yeah. Um now one thing I I will give him some credit for is um Tony Scott changed the ending of the film from what his original ending was. And considering the way he often talks, you'd think that he'd be really pissy about that. But he has said more than once that he thinks um, when a director takes on a film that they didn't write the script for, that they need to make it their own, which means potentially changing aspects of the script. And then in seeing the film, he thinks that the ending Tony Scott went with is the correct ending for a Tony Scott true romance, And that he thinks if he had made the film, then that then Tony Scott's ending might not have been right for his version of the film.
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: And and I like that attitude rather than like, well, I wrote the script and you changed it. And now it's a bad movie. Just saying like, oh, in seeing the way you chose to highlight certain things that I might not have um, or just how your directing style is different from me. This ending is appropriate for that film. And I'm Mm -hmm. glad you made it your own. I think that's cool because it seems like he Mm -hmm. wouldn't be like that.
0: Yeah, no, Totally. I think that the thing that I remember and take away the most, which I feel like you should in this movie, is the Clarence Alabama relationship.
1: I mean, that's what you come for and that's what keeps you going back, I think.
0: Yeah. There's like elements of it because like going into this, I'm just like, I'm so excited to see these two because I just remember really loving the, their relationship. On a rewatch, it's not the best or the <laughs> healthiest by any means. Yeah. God,
1: the things we thought were like relationship goals when we were younger. Yikes.
0: Yeah. It's just like, man, it'd be cool to have a girl that likes all the stuff that I like. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I will say there's no denying that these two, Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette, just babing it up.
1: Oh, yeah. They're, you know, and we've mentioned on the show more than once that Mr. Robot is one of our favorite shows of all time. and. There's a couple moments that really feel Mr. Roboty in, in wardrobe mm-hmm. from Clarence. Where I'm just like, Oh, Mr. Robot. <laughs> I mean, maybe not all Mr. Robot if you've seen Mr. Robot,
2: but,
0: <laughs> but it, it seems like Christian Slater loves to have that, that vibe. And he loves being in shows where he has somebody, uh, that he's talking to with the name Elliot. Yep. Uh, I'm not opposed to that.
1: No, <laughs> doesn't never spelled the same as you though. Never. Um, One of the things that I I felt about this film on rewatching it uh, is that it has some elements that remind me of the Big Lebowski Mm -hmm. in terms of this like people who are like fundamentally good hearted people getting in over their heads with dangerous people and kind of just stumbling around. Um, I hadn't seen the Big Lebowski when I had seen True Romance and now I've seen Big Lebowski quite a few times in revisiting True Romance considering the two kind of have a similar trajectory of plot. I like big Lebowski better. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just sillier and it's, it's got its issues as well. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't have the romance aspect obviously, but I, yeah. And in thinking about how both of them kind of would give me a similar experience. I think I would lean rewatch big Lebowski more.
0: I like the dude. I like the dude better than Clarence. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But I do. I do like this movie at the end of the day. I was like, I still like it. And I could see myself revisiting it every decade or so. Yeah. The marimbas are cool.
0: That's the that's the best. The best part of the movie is the main theme by Hans Zimmer.
1: Empire magazine said this about the film at the time. Empire magazine, Empire something.
0: Mm.
1: Um, And I totally agree with it. So they said Tony Scott's handling of Quentin Tarantino's script came off like the cinematic equivalent of cocaine flavored bubblegum, a bright, flavorsome confection that had an intoxicatingly violent kick, drawing some tremendously big names to its supporting cast. Like it's it's just fun, it's candy, it's kind of empty.
0: Yeah. But and I felt the runtime a little bit watching it this. Probably
1: because of the 30 minute. Maybe
0: that, yeah, that doesn't that didn't help it. Um, yeah, I agree. It's good revisit it every decade yeah that 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 sounds that sounds about right
1: how did it make you feel
0: like the coolness is not as cool now How make you feel
1: i still had a fondness for like the two lovers (laughs) um despite my problems with other aspects of the film
0: ah yes
1: all right we have got the big daddy here oh
0: man okay i'm so excited to talk about this one we went out to the theater for one of our most anticipated movies of the year, and saw the 2023 animation action adventure film Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. It was directed by Joaquim Dos Santos, Kemp Powers, Justin K. Thompson, and then written by Phil Lord, Christopher Miller, and Dave Callaham, based on the characters by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. It stars our main players in this one, Shameik Moore returning as Miles Morales, Haley Steinfeld as... Uh, Gwen Stacy, Oscar Isaac as Miguel O'Hara, Jake Johnson as Peter B. Parker, Issa Rae as Jessica Drew, Brian Tyree Henry as Jefferson Davis, and Luna Lauren Velez as Real Morales. Synopsis. Miles Morales catapults across the multiverse where he encounters a team of spider people charged with protecting its very existence. When the heroes clash on how to handle a new threat, Miles must redefine what it means to be a hero. This has been an excellent three weeks of Spider-Man content. First, we revisited Into the Spider-Verse, and then we got a 12-minute trailer of gameplay for the Spider-Man 2 Insomniac game, which I'm super excited about because the first one is one of my favorite games of all time, and now it's getting to see this. So, bing, bang, boom, three weeks in a row. Incredible. What do you think of Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse?
1: So, I was excited for this, but I don't know that I was as excited for it as you were. I lost sleep. In like a good way?
0: Yeah. Like the, you were excited? The night before, I woke up at three in the morning, couldn't get back to sleep. Like Just,
1: tri- Christmas Eve, Christmas Day kind yes. Oh, wow. That's how
0: excited I was for it.
1: So I was excited, but like you were like really excited. I really like the first movie, but you love the first movie. Yeah. So we saw it in IMAX. The seats in IMAX are not as comfortable as seats in other places, and you're very, very squishy, squishy. But the audience was really great. It was
0: incredible. Um, like as soon as it started, phones were off. Everybody was fucking quiet.
1: Yeah, it, it was it was really good. And I did find and I've, I've heard since from Phil Lord himself, not personally, but on Twitter um, that theaters are maybe not playing it at the volume it should be played at. And I found the mix a little quiet. So it was really awesome and important then that the audience was great because yes. it, I expected IMAX to drown any sound out in it, and it didn't. Um, so I'm glad that everybody was quiet. So all of that being said, holy shit, I loved this movie. Mm -hmm. Like this blew me away. I watched most of it with like big smile on my face. Sometimes my jaw open feeling incredibly emotional at other times. It is a very long movie. Yeah. I don't know if you know this, but it is the longest animated film of all time.
0: Oh, holy shit. Really? So it
1: be, there was a, I I didn't write down what the previous film was, but it is longer than the previous longest animated film of all time by four minutes. Mm. Um, and I have to say, I've said this on the show before, but I'm not a huge fan of long movies. And I, if a movie is long, I expect it to justify its runtime. This is zipped by for me. I hope it does on a rewatch, but Mm. like I, I could have kept watching and that's a rare thing for me. Um,
0: well, and also the guy that was sitting next to you.
1: So the movie ends and I just hear the person who's beside me pick up their popcorn bag, look in it and go, Oh wow, I still have so much popcorn. I didn't even know I was fucking locked in. <laughs> <laughs> so locked in couldn't eat his popcorn. Um this movie just kind of does that. Yeah, it, it grabs your attention and, and for me it just
0: held it. Yes. Yeah, I want to uh I just wanna I want to talk about <laughs> Some of the feelings that I had that were going through my head. So I feel like this movie celebrates being a Spider-Man fan um, on top of the story that it's already telling. And I say that because as I was watching this movie, I feel like it tapped into my childlike love that I have for Spider-Man. Like there's so many moments that just shot me back to watching the 90s cartoon and then buying the box set of like the, the spider-man 60s cartoon and loving that and like when the first toby Maguire spider-man came out that was another one i was so excited for and i saw an opening day for my friend's birthday and it was like it was magic and i saw spider-man 2 so many times in the theater like i've always been excited with the exception of like the andrew garfield movies i think
1: i was excited about those
0: i was excited for the first one
1: fair fair fair
0: <laughs> um but I, I just, I feel like there's always been so much excitement around Spider-Man growing up, and yeah, this, this just kind of tapped into that for me, and yeah, this was incredible. After it ended, and we were kind of unpacking it on the way home, I, my mind immediately went to because there was, there were some pockets of little kids that were, that were in the movie theater, and like, you know, that, that's cool. I, I, lo- I love that, but it just made me think of Guillermo del Toro's oscar acceptance speech this year for pinocchio and it just really stuck with me how he said that animation is not a genre but a medium Mm
2: -hmm.
0: like this is not a kids movie by any means like this is telling a like not that kids can't glom onto it and get something from it but this just hits a whole new emotional level that the that into the spider-verse didn't hit i think and it fleshes out so much more of the storytelling, and like there's there's longer sequ- stretches of sequences that there's no action going on on screen. It's just people talking and digging into some of the deeper emotional themes of the film. And I think that's incredible. Uh, and to see like that, it's getting a really good response. Like it's lining itself up to be like the highest rated narrative movie on Letterboxd <laughs> right now, which is insane.
1: Well, I think the thing that um makes that even more special and speaking about it as a medium rather than specifically a genre is comparing this to the super Mario brothers movie, Mm -hmm. which I also really liked and I really enjoyed, but that seems like it is taking these characters in a safe way to appeal to kids. Yes. And if it appeals to adults, it appeals to them from a nostalgia factor. Mm -hmm. This movie is telling a story. Yes. Yes. I don't know that super Mario brothers movie was telling a story. Mm -hmm. I think it was putting characters that we know and love on screen for us to know and
0: love them Mm -hmm.
1: in the way we already do.
0: Yeah. And if us as adults that have been playing Nintendo games for as long as we have finding those little Easter eggs and those little moments like that's, that's just kind of bonus. That's just kind of icing on the cake. But this, this celebrates like it has all those Easter eggs and celebrates all those moments And I think what's really great about that is that it makes it accessible to Spider-Man fans of all levels. Mm -hmm. And I think that's great. Like if you're just a casual Spider-Man fan that maybe just like drops in for the movies every every once in a while, that's cool. But if you're like a diehard been reading the comics since you were in the womb and have followed everything. Spider-Man lore. There's so much more for you to pick up there too. Um, and I just I love that awareness. And I I also love that the, the tro- in this film particularly, the choice to poke fun at and leverage and celebrate the Spider-Man lore is so well done. And how it ties into the plot.
1: Yeah, I have some theories of my own about where this film is film trilogy is going, and I and I hope I'm right. But in terms of what it's doing, this is our phrase of the week as a meta-narrative on filmmaking on spider-man specifically on comics i found it really impactful and i'm excited to see what they ultimately want to say about the thing that they start exploring in this film Mm -hmm. i was even more impressed with the animation in this than i was in the first one Mm -hmm. i particularly loved the emphasis on Gwen as a character and how much time we spend with her and how much time we spend in like her world, her universe Mm -hmm. Um, and the animation for her and for her universe is emotional to me. Mm -hmm. Like it was really, really, really well done. Um, I just was like dazzled the whole film.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was reading somewhere that, uh, spider punk, who's played by the is voiced by Daniel Kaluuya is uh it took them years to do his animation. I alone. believe it. <laughs> and it's, inc- it's incredible, but yeah, it's, there's particular moments that stand in my mind from Gwen's story and her universe, like the art style and how kinetic it is and how they use color to express emotion um, or to, or to emphasize emotion in that universe is so well done. Um, And you know it's it's been said over and over again, but it's just one of those movies where you can pause it at any time, and you could take that still and just throw it up on your wall as a piece of art. There's so many of those moments throughout. Yeah, like the and the all the new characters, like Oscar Isaac as Miguel O'Hara, is so so great, and there's an intensity whenever he's on screen. Um, The spot is a very unlikely but very imposing villain. I like him better than Kingpin from Into the Spider-Verse.
1: Well, I think that, I mean, as someone who really likes Spider-Man but doesn't necessarily know everything about the comics, mm-hmm. I do know Kingpin. I know Kingpin from Daredevil. I know him from Spider-Man. I didn't know the spot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yet he's, you know, you know Vulture and you know Green Goblin and you, but to, to put this character in there. And Jason Schwartzman, I really like him Mm -hmm. Um, and he does one of my favorite voice acting characters of all time in Ash from Fantastic Mr. Fox, Mm -hmm. but he's so good here in starting out seemingly silly and bumbling and turning into something else Mm -hmm. um, in a really compelling way. I don't know. I found the whole film both exciting and impressive and also deeply emotional and also intellectually engaging. Yeah. As I think about like kind of the bigger ideas of what's being said within the film.
0: Yeah. Cause it, and there's, and there's stakes like yeah. you f- you feel that in, in this emotional heft and the depth that they're exploring and like the character of miles. I mean, I'm, we were talking about this earlier this week of just how grateful I am that these movies, when they approached making these spider verse movies, that they wanted to move away from a uh, Peter Parker being our hero, our main, our main hero in this universe and wanting to focus on miles and miles. story, a lesser told Spider-Man story in terms of the films and he, the fact that people are growing up and like miles is going to be their Spider-Man. I I fucking love that so much. And
1: he can, he can inch out Tom Holland. I'm okay with that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's. I find like the growth of Miles in from into the Spider Verse into across the Spider Verse, even from the beginning of the film, just seeing where he's at now, and you know the the stakes and the choices that are put that thrust upon him in this movie and the decisions he has to choose to make. It's they're so they're so smart, and there was there were so many moments sprinkled throughout where you and I are just like, oh no, oh wow. (laughs) <laughs> like just the fact that they were able to surprise us and shock us and have such great twists. It's just like, it's such a good, it made it for such a good sequel.
1: Sound design's really cool too. Like I, I continue yeah. to love how characters have their own music sting mm-hmm. and how they like then incorporate that into other aspects. One thing I will say um, is that this film does end abruptly. Yeah. Um, And you could tell that not everyone in the theater knew that was going to happen Mm -hmm. um, because there was a lot of what? Um, And we did know that we Mm -hmm. I don't think that's really been kept a secret. And I I don't think that the filmmakers don't want people to know. I think they are happy to have people know that this is an abrupt ending and it's going to continue in the next one. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wasn't upset about that, but I could see if you didn't know that feeling like a little ripped off.
0: Yeah, I've I've heard that too. But what's kind of cool and interesting about that is that it ends two hours and 20 minutes at two hours and 20 minutes and that people are so invested that they're ready to stay for what the conclusion would be. I would,
1: I'd watch another two hour and 20
0: minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally.
1: I don't know, it was so good. I honestly can't wait to go see it again and I am just March 2024, can't come fast enough.
0: yeah. Uh, I I don't see a universe where this doesn't win the Oscar next year. I mean, the first one won the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature. I totally see this doing the same thing. I don't see Pixar's Elemental beating this out. <laughs>
1: I haven't seen it yet.
0: I know, but uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna place some bets now. Um, I got some breaking news, and I've been thinking about this all week and reflecting on kind of my history with Spider Man. And I think that Spider-Man is officially my favorite superhero. Overtaking Batman.
1: That's a bold claim. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I just think now I've been so much more excited for new Spider-Man content than I have been about any Batman stuff. Like they're bringing freaking Michael Ke- Keaton Batman, a Batman I grew up with and loved the movies for in the new Flash movie. And I'm like, eh. And like all of the DC universe Batman stuff, I've not been that excited for. I haven't played all of the Batman video games, and I'm not like, I don't know. I just find Spider Man and whoever is Spider Man, the like the whole story that like anybody can wear the mask, and have
1: yeah, to, Batman is not sending that message.
0: <laughs> no, and just the whole like rich white guy of it all. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I do feel like Batman as a character and, and kind of what is being done with him in films seems to just be continual recreations of the same type of thing where Spider-Man is starting to be pushed in new directions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it can be true that Batman was the most important superhero to you when you were a kid. And mm-hmm. yet that's changed. Yeah, that's wild. Wow, Because
0: I love I also loved Spider-Man as a kid. Like I, like I said, like I had Spider-Man toys. And I watched the cartoon and I've always loved Spider Man. It's always kind of been neck and neck with Batman slightly edging out Spider Man. But I think that now the sh- like, it, there's been a shift. And I think Spider Man's my favorite superhero. Well,
1: he's also my favorite superhero. So I don't know what we're going to do about that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Can't have that. Can't have that. <laughs> yeah, this movie's incredible. Go see it. Make sure you watch Into the Spider Verse and be aware that it ends on a cliffhanger. How to make you feel?
1: Jaw dropped gobsmatically. Yes.
0: Nice. Uh, Made me feel like my heart has been webbed up and is its beat is now thwip, 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 <laughs> thwip. thwip, thwip. <laughs> okay. last movie of the week was a mystery movie pick from me. <laughs>
2: yep. <laughs> um, Definitely.
0: I will preface this by saying I wanted to watch something that was dumb and fun. And I think I delivered. Um,. I wanted to watch and revisit for me the 1997 action drama sci-fi film Volcano. It was directed by a bunch of people with B-tier musician names. So it was directed by Mick Jackson and written by Jerome Armstrong uh, and Billy Ray.
1: (laughs) (laughs) These are all just the um, alter egos of (laughs) musicians.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Wannabe musicians. It stars Tommy Lee Jones as Mike Rourke, Ann Hesh as Dr. Amy Barnes, uh second Gabby Hoffman of the Week, Kelly Rourke, uh Don Cheadle as Emmett Reese, Jacqueline Kim as Dr. Jay Calder, Keith David as Lieutenant Ed Fox, and John Carroll Lynch as Stan Olber. Tag the tagline slaps, the coast is toast. <laughs> I don't know if it slaps. <laughs> um The volcano erupts in downtown Los Angeles and a city official and a seismologist try to stop it, uh, try to stop its inevitable flow through the city. Yep. (laughs) What do you think of Volcano?
1: It was something. I mean, you said you wanted to watch something dumb and fun. Delivered? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was fun the way that like something is fun for one time only.
0: Yeah. I get it.
1: <laughs> I wouldn't watch it again. I would not watch it again. So it's just a cheddar cheese movie. Like it is just, <laughs> I kept, I just kept saying this is cheesy potato. Like,
2: yeah.
1: Like none of it is believable.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: And then it gets even more unbelievable. Like even the stuff that like, is just straight character stuff. Isn't all that believable. Mm-hmm. And then you get into the volcano of it all and you're like, <laughs> like this seems to be just a like a mega shark kind of volcano movie do you know what I mean
0: yeah but like still with a decent budget
1: yeah I mean some some of the stuff looked cool I didn't think all of it did like there was a couple moments where I'm like oh they're they're playing with the 90s um, CGI and it's not not working so well but for the most part it looks good a lot of the same shot yeah And I'm like, I'm, I'm too good at visual stuff now, believe it or not, um, to not know that you're just using the same shot of lava again and again and pretending it's a different shot, but all right. Why do you like it so much? Like, this is something you said you watched all the time as a kid.
0: Yeah. So, um, among dinosaurs, tornadoes and the Titanic, I was obsessed with volcanoes as well as a kid, got a lot of books from the book fair.
1: On Volcanoes? On
0: Volcanoes. Nice. And the uh, other stuff I mentioned. I just thought that, like, I was excited to see this. And I think a big reason for my hype was there was a, there was a big tie-in with McDonald's with this movie. Like, oh, I, like, I think they interesting. Had, I think they had a themed McFlurry with, like, Volcano-branded cups.
1: That's interesting to me because this doesn't really seem like a kid's movie.
0: It's not. So, but there was just like a tie-in. Okay. It's all corporate advertising shit. Okay. But so, there's this one part of my mind, whenever I think of this movie, I grew up, I think my mom told me this, and I tried to validate it after we watched it last night, and it's kind of validated, is that my mom told me that the stuff they used for like the practical lava stuff, they used the same stuff they use Mc, they used to make McFlurries.
1: Yeah, it's the same stuff they used to make milkshakes. That's like, what I saw. Yeah.
0: So I think that my mom was semi semi right, but I always thought that was cool as a kid. I was like, oh my god, those McFlurries, <laughs> <laughs> oh, McFlurries.
1: Did you also think it was cool that the ash was made of newspaper?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh my god, that's the ash! <laughs> my mom
2: is reading the Edmonton Sun. <laughs> the
0: Edmonton Ash. <laughs> um, but as a kid, seeing this, I thought this was some of the stuff was so dark and intense, like. There's just like some stuff that happens to some people in this. That's like kind of fucked up and watching it as a seven year old would be fucked up.
1: Okay. So here's the thing you, I think showed me your volcano movies in the wrong order because a while ago you showed me Dante's peak and actually quite liked it. I liked it the way you like, like a twister
0: Dante's peak slaps.
1: It doesn't have a good rating on letterboxd.
0: It's better than this.
1: I gave it a four out of five on letterboxd, but it has a 2.8. Um, But I was like invested in the characters of Dante's Peak and I found particularly there's some acid water stuff in Dante's Peak that is quite chilling. If you compare the two, I'm like the stuff that happens in this isn't so bad.
0: (laughs) I mean, it would be fucked if this happened. Like for sure. In a city like this time around. Especially because
1: you don't like in Dante's Peak, there's always the looming threat of that volcano. In this one, you're like, where the hell did this volcano come from?
0: Well, yeah, like the fact that it's an anomaly, and then there's never been a volcano and lava activity that has access to like city sewer systems and like <laughs> subway systems and stuff and stuff like that. And that part felt like, oh shit, yeah, this would be really bad.
1: <laughs> so I feel like the people who made Shin Godzilla watched this movie and were like, I could do that better, because this movie does a lot of like. And now we're with the subway guy, and now we're with the disaster expert, and now we're with the seismologist, and oh, his teenage daughter's at home. Like, <laughs> but it's trying to cut between these things pretty fast, and there is a lot of like text on screen of like what day and time, and like who it is and where we are, and like that's what Shin Godzilla did. I found that so effective in Shin Godzilla, and in this it felt like a mess.
2: Yeah. Do you like in look-
1: this it felt chaotic. And in Shin Godzilla, it felt like it was mimicking the high-pressure situation and how quickly decisions have to be made, and it felt purposeful. Yeah. Whereas this it felt not
2: purposeful?
0: <laughs> yeah. Do you know what else I think added to that chaos that I really noticed this time around is that there's a lot uh, and it, the movie starts off with a lot of this. There's a lot of overlapping of different news or radio broadcasts talking over whatever's happening on screen.
1: Which doesn't add anything to the movie right like that's the thing I just found that the um, the general idea of the movie is good and fun and scary Mm -hmm. but then what they tried to do with character was like and throw a single dad in there who's struggling with his daughter
0: and have a
1: seismologist who kind of likes older men
0: (laughs) a single dad who's just trying to dump off his daughter wherever he can
1: like it's just those aspects of the film didn't really work for me and they have all of these secondary characters that never feel all that important. Like the one I was most interested in was the doctor. And yet even that it's all pretty thin, very thin. Um, so, you know, it was, it was fine. <laughs> it was just, it was fine. And then there was this other really interesting thing Whereas we we're watching and I'm like, Oh, this has a pretty diverse cast and that's cool for 1997. And like some kind of moments of like subtle commentary on that. But then there's this like one fucking line at the end of the movie that a toddler says, where I'm like, that is the clumsiest attempt to say something about race relations that I have ever heard, and it's it's actually quite offensive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so, I guess in 1997, you guys thought that this was some like real inclusive rah rah thumbs up stuff, but it's actually like real thumbs down because yeah. like, real bad, real not good, veering on blackface to be honest.
0: Yeah, like I, I feel like you can take Keith David's face as a reaction to that line <laughs> in a completely different way than what it's wanting to convey.
1: So do I recommend that people watch this movie? Not really.
0: Here's, what, here's something. I just want to circle back to Dante's Peak. So Dante's Peak came out in February of 1997. This came out in April of 1997 yeah two volcano movies in the same year volcano enthusiasts were creaming in nineteen ninety seven
1: yeah but like neither of these movies are apparently all that good. The internet did tell me that Dante's peak is more scientifically accurate, yeah, and it came out first well
0: because it focuses on that like it' we're ta- like, the the movies focused around the seismologist vulcan, volcanologist people, so they want to dig deeper on that here it's just like
1: Richter scale <laughs> Place your bets.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, there's some real cheesy stuff in this. Um, but you know what's wild? Especially because this movie came up the day before, and I'm curious if on some subconscious level you knew this. The guy who directed this directed Threads. Do you not know what threads is? What's threads? So Threads is this movie that we haven't seen, but we were having a games night with some friends. Um, the the hosts of Queer Horror Call, to like prolific horror watchers, particularly Lori. Um, and I mentioned Threads. Obviously, it didn't register for you because you don't know what that movie is. It's from I think the eighties, and it was a UK uh broadcast that's done in like a documentary style um about like nuclear war. And it's like well regarded as one of like the most upsetting, disturbing movies ever made. Oh. Um and, and like almost one of those ones where people say like you shouldn't watch it. It'll it'll upset you too much. Hmm. And it was another one of those like Ghostwatch, but in a different way, because I don't, I don't think, but I could be wrong. I don't think it presented itself as real, um, but that it aired once in the UK and then never aired on TV again until 2003 because people were too upset by it. Oh, damn. So interesting to me that he made this film that people call incredibly like unsettling and disturbing and and I think is dealing with some similar kind of large scale Urban disruption, but here, but in threads, it's coming from the perspective of nuclear war, whereas here it's volcanoes. So it's like he did this like intense, serious, solemn, upsetting one, and then he was like, "Let's just go have some fun."
0: Yeah, but yeah.
1: It, that is interesting to me. He's not the screenwriter on either of them, so also part of it, I'm sure. Yeah, some upsetting stuff, though, if you want to know. Oh God. So Anne Hesch, who if you go and read her Wikipedia page, she seemed to have a pretty troubled life and mm-hmm. the end of her life. Um, pretty sad. She was dating Ellen DeGeneres at the time that this movie came out and it was a fairly new relationship. And she was told not to attend the premiere if she was going to come with Ellen DeGeneres. And she did anyway. And they escorted her out.
0: Motherfucker.
1: So how much do you like volcano now?
0: Yeah. How um, What's that end scene really doing? Jesus.
1: So that's a bummer. That is a bummer. And honestly, Gabby Hoffman, if you're going to watch a movie she's in, pick Now and Then over Volcano. She's Gross. radically underused Gross, in this.
0: Un- Grossly underused.
1: Uh, she's so good in that. Um, she's so good in like her newer movies. Like, come on, come on. So, disappointment. When I saw her name, when this started, I was really excited. And then like, not only is she barely in it, but what she is in makes her seem like a really bad actor, and she's not.
0: Well, just like it's the, just so
1: cheesy. It's a lot of daddy.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: I'm just like, goodness gracious.
0: And like Tom Lee Jones is just like, he's great, but he's just always been old, right?
1: He's always been old.
0: Um, Don Cheadle was great in this too.
1: Actually, I did quite like John Cheadle. He was probably my favorite part.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If you're looking for a good volcano movie, quote unquote good, go for Dante's Peak over Volcano. Um, Unless you want to see... McFlurry lava, then watch volcano. Definitely, and some just poor attempts at all lives matter shit. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> how to make you feel
1: cheesy, acceptable fun? You
0: uh, adequately satisfied in the dumb and fun category. That's it. That's the Smackeroonies.
1: Those are the Smackeroonies.
0: And uh, so let's get here. Let's let's get to the namesake of this show, and name some bad and rad dads start with you who's your bad dad nominee
1: so i'm hoping this doesn't come across as a spoiler but my bad dad nominee is miguel from across the spider-verse
0: okay go yeah go on i don't i don't uh, uh, i want to keep happen. it like
1: pretty short just to, to not get into anything spoilery because i'm sure there's people who are excited to see across the spider-verse and haven't yet but i just find in terms of somebody that you could call a mentor figure to miles. He approaches him with aggression, disdain and ultimatums, pretty much the complete opposite of Peter B Parker. And I think in terms of that dad like energy, it's really bad. It's really awful. Yeah. That's all I want to say. Cause I don't want to spoil anything.
0: Yeah. I, I think that's all valid. I also considered Miguel. Um, but I ended up going with uh, Raymond from The Vanishing.
1: Yeah, that checks.
0: Uh, I mean, of course, toxic, icky, sick, sociopathic, but he's he's dishonest, disloyal, deceptive, and dangerous. And then to cap it all off, real bad facial hair.
1: does have really bad facial hair. That is true.
0: Yeah, and throughout the film, it's like this guise of like, oh, I'm a really good family man, but you see what's behind it and it's like, this is all bad dad energy. This is all bad vibe. That is true. Yeah.
1: He is probably worse than Miguel.
0: Yeah. Okay. So we going with Raymond? Yeah. All right, Raymond. Don't, Don't be, be our dad. dad. Yuck. Hey, uh, rad dad. I went with Miles.
1: Interesting. Interesting.
0: Um, I think that Miles is, he's car- caring and compassionate about the people in his life. And that he actively tries to do the right thing and reevaluate what the right thing is. I feel like he recognizes his flaws through learning and through experience. And he's also the things he does and the things he says are, can be inspiring uh, to others and can, can assist in making them rethink or reevaluate their values or their beliefs in like a positive way. I feel that isn't trying to like force an idea down their throat, but like just make them be thoughtful about their perspectives, which I think is really great. that's, that's some real good dadding. Would you pick?
1: I picked adult Roberta. It's like Rosie O'Donnell. Yeah. Roberta. Yeah. Um, I do think that some of the energy that, Becomes that rad dad energy and adult Roberta is there when she's younger, which also just adds to the fact that I see adult Roberta as, a, as the rad dad, because you see the growth. Right. Cause there's a couple things that young Roberta does that are not cool. Mm-hmm. Um, one specifically that Chrissy calls her out on. Yeah. And you can see how she's grown from some of those behaviors um, and some of those like inabilities to tackle her own feelings from when she's young But even when she is young, she has this kind of sense of like not standing for anyone's bullshit, um, protecting her friends, valuing her friends. But then when she's older, you see this in this way of like she's calm, collected, she's warm and she's kind, but she'll also like call you out on stuff. Like one of the best parts of the movie is uh, breast is not a dirty word. (laughs) And just like keeping bugging Chrissy about it, but not in a mean way. Um, And by the end of the film, when you've got all of the like women together as adults, you see her as kind of this like leader of the group of like Chrissy just desperately wishes that everybody would spend more time together. And Sam and teeny are a little bit more detached from that. And Roberta clearly sees both sides yeah, and values both sides without getting like judgy or defensive the way that like Chrissy gets a little judgy and Sam gets a little defensive. And I just find that she kind of holds them together in a way that, Bonds them while honoring everybody's individual journeys and pasts and current state of mind. And I think it's really awesome.
0: Yeah. She kind of encompasses all of that in just that, like that one, that one sequence where like Chrissy's kind of laying it on thick Sam and T uh, and teeny are kind of on the defensive. And then Roberta's like, I just want to see you guys more. Yeah. <laughs> and I find
1: that like, that's just the kind of approach she has that is leading like it is a leader but it is that in a warm kind
0: way yeah it feels like do you remember the name of their town
1: no but i know they live in the gaslight edition yeah
0: that's what i know too
1: shelby shelby indiana
0: i feel like she's shelby's dad
1: (laughs) yeah because at the beginning of the film she like throws a basketball and people are like yo doctor whoever
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah 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 you know what fuck yeah
1: I feel like Miles might be the rad dad of his final film. Yeah. But for now, I think he's still, I think he still has some learning to do before he can fully become a rad dad. He's kind of like Roberta when Roberta's young. He's not quite there yet.
0: I'm not going to say I'm not disappointed that we don't have anybody from across the Spider-Verse in a dad position this week.
1: I gave you Miguel.
0: Yeah. But, uh, we're giving it to, to nasty Raymond. And, yeah, I think, I think Rad Dad is Roberta, open bracket now, close bracket.
2: <laughs> All
1: right, Roberta now, <laughs> be, our be our dad.
0: dad. <laughs> uh, nice.
1: Hit you with a little Rad Rack of the Week before we're out. Support your indie bookstores. Um, I am trying incredibly hard to not buy anything from the chain bookstores, particularly after what's happened in Canada with Chapters Indigo the former employee, really don't want all my information out there. So in our local indie bookstore supporting, we try to buy from Glass Bookshop. Very excited to someday make it out to Paper Birch Books, which is a newer used bookstore in town. Um, My brother is always raving about Audrey's books. So find your local bookstores and if you can buy from them instead of from whatever the big chain is wherever you are
0: yeah yeah and if you're in edmonton go check out glass bookshop a really great independently owned queer owned business uh have an excellent selection of books it's right next to the independently owned kind ice cream so you it's can get,
1: also queer owned
0: yeah so you can get some good ice some good ass ice cream love the ice cream and pick up a, a cool book from glass bookshop it's lovely
1: support your local indies especially your local indie bookstores
0: hell yeah Uh, and thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. Uh, you can follow us and slide into our DMS on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual letterbox accounts. Our usernames are in the show notes and we'd absolutely love you forever. If you'd share us with the rad people in your life and please feel encouraged to drop a rating review or follow on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from that is gonna do it for these web heads this week so until next time
1: i'm kylie and my dad's dead
0: i'm elliot and my dad's a deadbeat i remember not all dads have to be dead